0: Evening chaps, the following is a conversation with Dan McDougall. Dan is a film director and writer. He is also the British Foreign Correspondent of the Year, uh, which is the UK equivalent of a Pulitzer Prize, and this is an award for which he has been nominated for three times. To date, Dan has won four Amnesty International Awards for Human Rights Reporting. Dan has at the same time an extraordinary, but nonetheless harrowing resume of writing and reporting from across the world. He's covered issues as diverse as child rape in South Africa, LGBTQ persecution from ISIS in Syria, the plight of Europeans' Roma population, Zimbabwe's deadly trade in blood diamonds, African migration across the Med into Europe, uncovering illegal sweatshops in India, the opium trade in Afghanistan, sexual violence in the Congo, child labor in the cotton fields of the Nile Valley, and I can't stress this enough, much, much, Much more. Like I said, his resume is extraordinary, but also harrowing. I think in the conversation Dan said over 127 countries he had reported from. So we are dealing with one of the great foreign journalists of our time. Dan is a very charming Scotsman, um, a Glaswegian uh, specifically. And these days he's shifted his attention towards his film company, Moran Media. I discovered Dan via a piece that he made for The Guardian uh, about Greenland, um, a film that he made for The Guardian about Greenland. Dan's attention these days is firmly fixed to the climate crisis, um, a topic of which we spoke quite a lot about in this podcast. All right, no more from me. The following is a conversation with Dan McDougal. Well, welcome, Dan McDougal. Thank you so much for, yeah, coming onto the show. No,
1: yeah, that, you know, good afternoon from Barcelona yeah nice sunny afternoon how, how is it there
0: uh yeah it's quite lovely actually you know i'm up in the north in stockholm so the weather's sporadic it actually snowed the other night but today it's like a a toasty 10 degrees outside if you get out into the sun's rays so it's quite all right
1: yeah i, I love sweden i I've, I've spent so much time there um over the years I've, I've given talks there and you know um it's it's definitely one of my my favorite places and i think also um there's a lot of kinder spirits there, right? Mm. People really do have a kind of strong moral compass. And yeah, it's a great place, great place to live.
0: Yeah, it's quite a phenomenal culture. Um, the Nordics more generally, obviously they'll get into the, <laughs> into the minutiae that the Swedes are totally different from the Norwegians or the Danes or whatever, but it kind of gets that way in isolated pockets of the world. But yeah, the, the Nordics generally are just, uh, like, like you say, um, they, have this, they have this terrific sort of sensibility to them. Um, but it's not, but it can also be sort of self-deferential, you know? So it, it is sort of the best of both worlds where you don't get, uh, over self-deferential, but you can also maintain some level of, I don't know, um, seriousness. Well, I, 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 spent a lot of time in Copenhagen as well, and I have Danish friends. And, and when they
1: crossed the border into Malmo, um, so I, I, went to see Celtic, um, my football team play against, um, Malmo the, and yeah. the champions league qualifiers, um, trying, <laughs> Trying to talk to an Australian about, about football is is tricky, tricky business. (laughs) But anyway, so we crossed the border and train, got the train through that incredible tunnel and crossed into Mamo and then we, you know, we're having a few beers in a square and my Danish friend turned to me and said, this is the difference because he hates the Swedes. And he says, this is the difference between Sweden and Denmark. And he pointed at a chair and over each chair in this, this lovely bar, cafe, there was a perfectly folded blanket. (laughs) And I was thinking that's the difference. The difference is they're a little bit more fastidious. So they put a <laughs> crease in their blanket and you don't. And I said, shall we chat about the differences between the English and the Scots? Yeah, right? yeah. And then we'll just, we'll, we'll be here for days. And so I think it's a, I, I would argue strongly may, maybe a little bit like Australia and New Zealand. I mm. think it's a, I think it's a, 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 a rather a false dispute. Shall I say
0: it's a brotherly dispute really. A brotherly dispute, yeah. okay, a brotherly dispute, yeah, yeah, yeah. anyway. Um, so. Dan, obviously, we really want to get into um, speaking about how we can improve climate change storytelling, which is okay. sort of front and center of your mind and your work these days. Now, you have an extraordinarily decorated career in international journalism um, before you, and I'm sure in front of you as well. But before we get into that, I just want to ask, you know, a little bit about you. Um, clearly, you're a Scotsman. You grew up in, in Glasgow. Um when you were a young kid growing up, did you romanticise the journalist?
1: I think I think one I think one of the challenges is in terms of becoming, for example, a foreign correspondent. Is when you grew up, in, I, I grew up in a housing estate and working class. I went to comprehensive. I was the first member of my family to go to university. So when you really come from that background, your aspiration is is to try and like I want to. I, I knew I always wanted to be a journalist. Mm. There's no question. I mean, everywhere I go in the world, I carry one of that. Basically, I carry Tintin. So when i was little um that was my reference point to what a journalist was Tintin, you know traveling the world mm. and, and and having these extraordinary adventures and i really aspired to that at a really young age I wants to travel um and i grew up you know uh i didn't grow up poor but i was working class and i didn't have foreign travel or anything like that so my my map was was the library so i would go to a library where i lived and 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 uh, i would look at reference books and look at maps and they had all these stores and the reference libraries of old coins and stuff so I was really drawn to to travel through mm-hmm. my imagination right and, and and ironically that's the same way Herge was too because Herge never traveled he was like a bit of an agrophobic he just he just kind of got people to do research for him and then just do these incredible images from from you know if you can imagine how Hergé created Tintin, the, the, the detail is incredible, everything from advertising billboards to, to how mountains look. And he used that literally through, through just a power of research and people researching for him and postcards and books. And he he's a great researcher. That really triggered my imagination in terms of being able to travel the world. And when I decided I wanted to be a journalist, um, there was only one place for me to begin that, and that was in Glasgow. Mm. And to be a journalist in Glasgow, there are two things about being a journalist in Glasgow, hard drinking and hard living. I mean, Glasgow is one of the probably the, the toughest patches in the world mm. to be a journalist. Um, and I remember going for work experience at 17 and I'd gone to, I was I was quite a promising footballer and, I, and I'd, I was really interested in sport. And I had this option at 17 to drop um, PE, right? Physical education, because I wanted to take a typing class. And in those days, secretarial studies, it was basically 30 girls and me and I sat in that class for a year and learned to type. And, and so when I went to do my work experience at the Glasgow Herald, a great old newspaper mm-hmm. at the age of 17, I went in and the first thing that the news editor said is, can you type? And I said, yes, <laughs> I can type. And then he's like, right, type this. And that was me, I was, you know, sitting there typing, quite happy. And then at the age of 17, I was taken to the pub by um, someone I later got to know. I won't name, name the names. but um, And he bought me about like, three pints of lager. I never really drank in my life. Nice. And I was... <laughs> I was drunk the time I got back and he got he got a bollocking. And (laughs) then I was told to sit in the corner. Uh That was my baptism. So 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 really the the ambition at that point was maybe to be maybe in TV or something, but ultimately to be uh, to cover Scotland, crime, Glasgow, Mm -hmm. these kind of things Now, there's a reason for that. So and I, and I learned this much later, is there's a bit of a class war in terms of being a foreign correspondent. Uh, the tradition was to go to Oxford or Cambridge from private school and then go down to the Times mm-hmm. to sit on the home desk, go to the foreign desk, and then get your first posting in Africa or India. Mm-hmm. But when you're, when you're a working class kid, it doesn't work like that.
0: So it sounds like though your, um, your journalism came first as the ambition and then secondary was the international aspect of things but i do want to make a commentary on the the way that you idealized um you know the tintin character personally and i think it would be true for a lot of people from my generation that romanticize the international journalist the foreign correspondent like the the war zone journalist it's actually uh men like yourselves tim marshall even christopher hitchens to a degree um you know i was like the kid who from a very early age I would just like sit with my head in a, in an atlas, um, many nights, um, you know, my family would be like, what are you doing or whatever? But I, I don't know, there is this like attraction to the map, just looking at a weird part of the world and trying to n- not even understand it. Just, just look at it, maybe learn from it. I don't know, because it is true that you've reported from all the 90 countries and war zones, right? Like that's a, it's an immense number. That's, it's an, ex, it's a a considerable amount of experiences
1: Well, I, I think um i i think i i think if i was honest um i i, I maybe i did romanticize it i'd the, the ideal of it at first right about becoming a foreign correspondent i did i did think it'd be um it'd be exciting it'd be exhilarating and it is all those things but it's also left me with a lot of a lot of trauma and a lot of um, bad memories mm. and negativity and, and, um, and I, I have suffered from post-traumatic stress um, like a lot of foreign correspondents have um, I mean I've reported left 127 countries so, <laughs> oh, yeah. so 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 really when I, when I start to when I start to look at a map and try and piece things together and think you know uh, it, 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 it's just it, yeah I mean it's been an extraordinary experience, but at the same time, I, I, it's hard for me now to even think about romanticising that because I know that a lot of the suffering, the conflict, the the trauma that I've covered and encountered, it's hard to it's hard to look at that as a as a kind of grand adventure. Sure. It's felt it's felt for me like a um, a calling. I would definitely say, as it, you know, certainly as, even as a young journalist, you know, investigating local crime in Glasgow, or uh, you know, or, or you know. Um, you know, I worked for the Scotsman, it was a grand old title in, in Edinburgh. And, I, and I, I I, I, definitely think I found my own as a foreign correspondent. And the reason for that is because I was able to transfer all my knowledge as... Uh, a, I hate to use the word regional for Scotland because Scotland's not regional, but I was a really good tabloid journalist. Okay. And I was able to use my instincts to become a foreign correspondent, a successful one. And I felt when I first became a foreign correspondent, because I had this really solid upbringing as a tabloid journalist and working in, you know, Glasgow housing estates and and, and, and I'd started to do more foreign assignments from Scotland. I'd had the real training and the instinct. Mm. So by the time I became a foreign correspondent, I was running circles around people because I was just like a dog with a bone. Mm -hmm. And also I had something to prove. And that's something I talk about a lot in talks that I give, is I really... Scott is a like kind of chippy in a strange way, right? You've got a bit of a chip on your shoulder. And, and, and so I kind of felt certainly that I, I had something to prove. When, when I moved to India to work for The Guardian, I definitely felt that, that I'm going to prove something mm. here. And I remember being at a roof terrace, and my, 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 my wife's a BBC newsreader, and I remember being at a, a roof terrace uh, party and listening to all the foreign correspondents talk about their experiences. And I was a bit green at that point, but I remember thinking, I can do this. Mm. I'm going to do this and I'm going to. So there was a determination there to, um, and, and it's still the same. I don't know why there aren't more working. And this is something that we might talk around climate change issues, mm-hmm. right? Why are there not more working class foreign correspondents? And the reason is, is that because it's expensive to be a foreign correspondent, especially now, okay. you know, the Los Angeles times shut down all the bureaus, you know, the New York times cut the bureaus back the times. Um, don't really have staff foreign correspondents per se. They have, you know, they have the kind of roving uh, correspondent from London that might go into the field, etc. Some brilliant journalists, but stationed correspondents per se don't really exist anymore. Interesting. So, well, if I was to look at a list of the foreign correspondents that, that operate in different countries, I would pretty much, you know, the, a lot of them are independently wealthy.
0: Okay. So they're almost big um, for themselves. No,
1: surely not. I mean, absolutely. I mean th- wow. this is the thing, right? It's a it's a it's a great myth, right? Is that, you know, um that that um you know, foreign correspondents get lovely houses, mm-hmm. they get staff, they get all these things and everything else. And yeah, in India we had a good standard in South Africa and everything. I was lucky I was a staff journalist, but but now it's it's you know, few and far between. You have to, you know, pay your own rent, pay your own way, very often pay your own travel in advance and then claim it back and, and um yeah, I mean, being a freelance foreign correspondent is not an easy job mm. financially. And that's one of the reasons why we don't have working class kids. So you could take a brilliant working class journalist from Manchester or from Sydney mm. or, you know, from anywhere. And then, you, you you know, they could do an amazing job, but they look at it and think, I can't afford to do this. That's a travesty.
0: That's actually really surprising to hear. Why is it that the economics don't work for the foreign correspondent or the foreign journalist now? Um, is it because maybe news has become so much more heavily driven towards whatever the domestic agenda is and people's interests about what's happening around the rest of the world is, is wavering? And so there isn't just the demand for the foreign correspondent. I mean, it strikes me that most of the big publications in our two countries and most countries in the world w- would be able to have a big, um, at least a little bit of a presence in some of the major geopolitical countries in the world. Uh, like, why is the economics not working there?
1: I think you know. Look, the newspaper industry is all about managing decline, right? Um, so you're, you're you know effectively it's been superseded by by social media, by you know other forms, uh, you know online media, um, print media is you know as as we know is pretty much dead in the water. Uh, print sales are you know dramatically down. Uh, every year. So the so the business model doesn't really work anymore. Yeah. And then when you look at the business model, and you try to make it leaner, then the first thing you do is think, okay, well, well what's costing us most money? Well, why do we have a bureau oh. in, uh, in Nairobi? Mm. <laughs> it's like, why do we have a, you know, and that, that was one of the first things when the, the, the crunch started to hit newspapers, it was foreign journalism that was hit hardest. And don't get me wrong, there's still investment in foreign journalism. But there's, you know, even the BBC model, the BBC have increasingly pushed towards having regionalised correspondents. So rather than parachuting in, uh, um, uh, someone from London to, to report in Delhi, they'll try to look more at developing local journalists, which mm. I think is a fantastic yeah,
0: thing. Yeah, I, I have noticed that. But, that is good. Yeah.
1: But at the heart of that decision is trying to save money.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and, and that's, the, that's, that's the reality. I mean, and, and I, so I think that, um, Maybe perhaps there's a misconception around being a foreign correspondent um, that uh, that it's it's uh, I don't know. I, but I usually, don't like jet
0: setting around the world, telling breaking the really exciting stories, yeah. dining and boozing with the interesting players. Like that is the really romanticized view of it, you know. It was like that for a time.
1: I mean, I think if you're lucky. I mean, I'm fortunate in the sense that I can fairly. Confidently go anywhere I want to tell a story now, right? But I've worked hard to get to that position. Mm-hmm. And so the challenge is, is that if you I can remember a crazy story, right? I decided I decided that um I, I was in New York and I and I and I got a bunch of change from a coffee shop. It's like sense, and I was like, wow, people just going crazy with with all this change. And I just decided on the spot I was gonna try and investigate where money came from. So I got back to the UK and I and I and I, I sent some pound coins to a lab to get analysed and then they came back and said, Well the money has copper and nickel in it and copper nickel and these different metals. And then I, then I then I narrowed it down and worked out which mines it was most likely they came from. And then I started to, to retrace the supply chain of money, mm-hmm. right? Because all my stories are just like total lateral thinking. And I just said to my desk at the time, I said, right, I'm going to go to Chile and I'm going to go to Madagascar and I'm going to investigate where money's coming from. And then I'm going to prove that money's unethical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and Which I did in the end uh-huh. because the Royal Mail had the, Roy, the Royal Mint, sorry, in the UK had to admit they didn't know where the money came. The metal oh. From money wow. came from, but so so there's if you're in that position then it's great because you can go wherever you want, but you've got to produce results. But cool. if you're starting from scratch to say I need to go to Madagascar, I need to go to Chile, I'm gonna you know come back to the UK from where I'm posted in Africa to do the story, they're going to say, well, okay, well, yeah, pay for it yourself. Okay,
0: look, that's interesting. So the point you're making is just that you had to get to a point of authority where they would say, all right, like. Dan's going to produce something which is going to be an absolute ROI on whatever we pay for him to do. Um, But that's also true across really anything that you do. You know, um, you you are the outlier. You're the exception if you're sort of given an an opportunity to do something before you have a proven authority uh, that you've been able to do it before. Um, But specifically on international foreign journalism, how do you think it's affected storytelling? If now, rather than sending out, say, the Englishman to the story, you rather employ your local BBC um, journalist who is on site already, Um, has it affected the way the stories have been told? Or do you think there is still consistency in the journalism?
1: I mean, this is something I haven't analysed. I wouldn't claim any authority on it. I mean, there are some brilliant journalists um, that... You know amazing indian journalists i've worked with over the years i mean i have a film company we have fixtures all over the world we work with who are exceptional um so i i i would like to think that, that we'll get to a point where the standard is is eclipses anything that um uh that has has been in the past um i i think from a broadcast perspective it's very different because when you're you know i've i've, I've worked for bbc for panorama i broadcast as a, as a documentary maker i think when you're on camera and you're presenting and you're writing scripts and everything. It's all really strong disciplines that you have to, to gain over time. Um, uh, and, and it's definitely trickier putting someone in front of camera that you're not confident about mm-hmm. as opposed to having someone write a piece that you can edit. Mm-hmm. So I think it's different different strokes for different um, media outlets. For um, So uh, I would be interested to know if, there's, if there was an analysis of it. But I, I, ultimately, one of the things that we're trying to do, as storytellers at the moment is empower people to tell the stories themselves um you know when when um uh you know we're we're doing a project at the moment on um mapping land indigenous land uh using infrared and using drones and different technology and and the storytelling around the storytelling around that has to come from indigenous people it can't come from you know, some guy from America or or, or Glasgow or, you know, or Australia. So it has to come from them. Mm. And that's the that's the, the, the way that we can reach authenticity and storytelling is if it's less about us mansplaining and more about them telling us what the hell is going on. Mm-hmm. And we're just facilitators in that. I think that's a positive. Ultimately, it may sound a bit woke, though. I'm sure a lot of journalists would disagree. <laughs>
0: well, you did say mansplain, so I'm sure you'd be accused of uh, being too woke there. What what uh, what country are you uh, mapping the land in? In um, Peru. In Peru. Oh, bloody magnificent. Yeah. It's exciting. Um, I, th- this is just something that's come to the top of mind. It's not really in line with what we were planning to talk about. I just want to ask, have you noticed a change in demand for the international story in your career? Um, has like people's hunger for news turned more domestic um, over time? Obviously, there is like a consistency to these things, but... I'm just I'm just trying to understand whether there has been a decrease in demand for the foreign story, um, because it's just like in in my eyes, it's the most interesting thing. You know, learning about something that happened, say, in you know Gambia or that happened in India or happened in Sri Lanka is more important to me, at least, than whatever the headline is of the day in Stockholm. Um, but have you noticed any trend lines like that throughout your career? Maybe a decrease in demand for international news?
1: I don't think I don't think demand is the issue. I think the issue is space. So certainly from a print perspective if you're if you're writing um, uh, um, you know an, an article for The Times today about what's going on in Ghana, the likelihood is is that the correspondent who writes that will not be in Ghana. they'll be in a hub and they won't travel as much mm. so the budget's been slashed so they don't travel as much and then. The, the, the nature of uh, foreign news now is that it's squeezed down to two pages, so you don't have enough space. So you've maybe got three 400 words to write a story that's deeply complex. Right. Um, and that's that's the, I, th- I think space is the issue, which is why I, I, I write so much long form, like, you know, magazine pieces, like, you know, and and so I and, and I think that long form for me is a savior because if you can write six thousand words on an incredible story, then you're you're winning. Mm-hmm. But if you have to do that in three hundred words, you're, not, you're 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 losing. I mean, because you, you can't you, you can't fight against space. Um, so I think that that's the that's the main thing is as the as the pagination for foreign pages and newspapers has shrunk so it used to be six pages of foreign news now it's two mm. even in the sunday times great newspaper but increasingly shrinks the, the foreign pages you have to fight for space
0: and now That's you're probably- you're getting into film as well which obviously is probably the best medium uh these days or at least the highest conversion medium i would imagine um you probably saw there's a very popular documentary at the moment called Seaspiracy spiracy on netflix you know which is more or less rather a totally freelance job and I'm not and I have seen a bit of criticism about what they've said but nonetheless it has gotten more attention I would say than really any long piece in The Economist or Vanity Fair or even your local newspaper that might have published a similar story about the damage of overfishing you you know so maybe it is like more film that is going to be the high converter now so than maybe before.
1: Well, I mean, I've, I've always been a filmmaker. I mean, I decided when I was when I was a Sunday Times Africa correspondent, I would start making documentaries to the BBC. And I and I and I, I, I was really always driven to I studied film at university. So I was always driven into to be a filmmaker as, as at the same time as being a writer. Mm-hmm. I, I saw the value in the medium, you know, straight away in, in my career. Um, So I've been making films for many years uh, and. As a documentarian, I would definitely say that the sea, sea spirit is very problematic. I mean, I've investigated seafood myself. I've investigated oceans, the marginalization of the mocking in, in Thailand. I've investigated supply chains in tuna and supply chains in, um, in, in salmon. Mm-hmm. I, I've been reporting on the oceans. You know, I was one of the first journalists to cover um, the refugee, climate refugees in Tuvalu back in 2006, mm, yeah, 2007. I swear, I I could write the book on it, yeah. right? So when I watched Seaspiracy and I sat down with my son to watch it, it was my son that said to me, he turned to me at 14 and said, it seems to be more about the guy than, mm-hmm. than actually about the story. Where's the... And then and then, obviously we saw... I mean, I could, I, I could with a fair degree of scepticism, mm-hmm. the data that was pinging up was concerning me. Okay. Um, but then obviously we saw the fallout from it. So the question that you're asking is... Does that do more harm than good? Um, I I think that the people that are complaining generally are the academics, the the people that have been studying Mm -hmm. oceans for for decades. They're saying, well, look, there's inaccuracies here and that's undermining your work. But at the same time, this has reached a global audience, Mm -hmm. a massive audience. And if you've got a few facts wrong, but it's cut through, Mm -hmm. I think it's succeeded. Mm. And, And I also think kudos to Netflix for actually funding it in the first place and making this happen. I just think that have no doubt that the filmmaker that made this will think will learn from it and think, Okay, next time we'll copy sure. bottom what we've done here. I think it was sensationalist in parts, but I think it was it was well done, and others. To be honest, it didn't tell me anything new, but that's me, right? Sure, well, but I've that is you, someone who subject.
0: has a wealth of knowledge in the subject. Yeah. You know, someone like me who has paid a lot of attention to specifically farmed salmon in Norway, right? So, in um, Scotland's a big business as well, obviously. But like paying specifically attention there, I could see like, okay, wow, it's good that this is becoming a part of the story and that people are learning a little bit more about the salmon that they're eating on their plate here in Stockholm. It's not nearly as good for you as you might think it is. Um, but, yeah, for a general audience who might have just been you know totally shut eyed to the idea that you're trawling a a net across the ocean floor that it has some other um, um, s- s- some bad byproducts like there is value to that, but it actually kind of ties into what you were saying before about the more or less maybe i 'm clutching at straws here to the international uh, desk being cut away because of a budget cut. it leaves a space for this um, work by this guy, this freelance, I think his name was Ali, um, this freelance, uh, piece, which has a different standards to adhere to than if it was say a piece that the New York times published, you know, or that, um, you know, grab X reputable, uh, journalistic publisher and their, um, media outlet. So, and because of that difference in standards, maybe you'd get the, the, The lower quality control from the freelancer but it's him just sort of meeting a demand you know is that a clutching at straws or is that a fair connection no no i think that
1: makes sense but i think also i think in fairness to him as a documentarian is that he's he's having to to crunch all these stories each 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 vignette and conspiracy would make an episode in itself Mm. right we're trying to it's almost like a one catch-all film we're trying to just take all of these issues and put it into one Mm. film when they're all very complicated, they're all very nuanced, and they're all um, probably worthy of their own episodes, sure. right? I mean, you mentioned salmon. I mean, I, I investigated salmon in Chile. Um, you know, uh, you know, in the salmon farms, and it was being pumped full of antibiotics, mm-hmm. and and you know, horrendous supply chains that was also damaging parts of Patagonia. Yeah. And then we followed the trail back to the UK, where the salmon was being labelled packed in Scotland.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But it was being it was being grown as, as, uh, in fish farms in Chile yeah and and, and elsewhere you know the whole seafood supply chain is a for me the issue is mislabeling and, and you know uh, but I mean, we could have a whole conversation yeah. about fish supply but anyway, the seaafars say I would say generally speaking if it's engaging a generation in, in the issues that matter then then it, then it's it's successful and, and and I would definitely take my hat off to it.
0: Mm-hmm. I love the supply chain investigation of your work. Um, Something I really want to do. I have a mate in Mexico who grows coffee and Nestle are pressuring him now to buy his land. And I really want to go there and try and tell that story. Um, the right way, but you mentioned before the money, tracing it all the way back to where does this copper and nickel come from? I heard you say in another interview as well that you, you you want to learn the A to B of things, which drew you into the you know the sweatshops in India and elsewhere around the world, looking at fast fashion, and then you just mentioned the salmon supply chain as well. Uh, I think it is good. Uh, it is good for people everyone, a consumer of absolutely anything, to just acknowledge that. <laughs> whatever the price is of the thing that you're buying somewhere along that supply chain, there has been an exploitation somewhere. Most of the time, obviously not all the time, but most of the time, especially if you're buying cheaper things. Um, but that is obviously a topic for an entire uh, other podcast as well. Um, one, which I would love to, to hear you do as, as well uh, to maybe call out specifically some of the bigger companies that you've spoken about before in the past. Um, but I wanted to, Yeah. I wanted to ask this last question about journalism as a more general question before we get into the climate change. How how important is your ability to write into becoming the journalist that you are, or was it more your, um, personality, charisma, ability to take risks, hard work ethic, this sort of thing. How much was the, I, Dan can make really good prose and influence into you becoming successful as a journalist.
1: I I think that um, I I, I oh gosh um, so I get this I get asked a lot yeah. about about so I, so I lecture at Cambridge in human rights storytelling and and I also lecture to a lot of journalism students and journalism schools around the world and and I also often get asked you know what's the what's the secret sauce right to becoming a successful foreign correspondent and there isn't really an answer to that but I definitely think that intuition is a huge part of it. And what, what my grand would say is, you know, you, you can't teach that, which is kind of partly is that what's within us, right, is as storytellers is something that, that is innate. It's almost like something that we have within us to, to be able to go to somewhere and, and instinctively think that's a story. I definitely feel it as a filmmaker. If I go into a room, I'll sit down and, and normally NGOs will say, look, we would like to put this person forward to be part of the story. um She's this, she's this, she studied here, studied there, and then there's a, I'll give you an example. So recently, I made a film, I made a film about about mental illness in, in, in surfing and in, in, in townships in South Africa, where I would made documentaries before about gang culture. Mm-hmm. And I went to do the film, and I met all of these really incredible candidates to follow as a character in a film. And in the corner was a little girl about 18 and 19 with a shock of dyed blonde hair, and she was just sitting and she didn't see anything. And and then and then I was just looking at the way she was like engaging and she was and I thought she's a character mm-hmm. and, and it's the last person anyone in the room would pick and she was a character in the film. So that is instinct and the instinct comes from experience but also just having an understanding of who's going to be the best character for your journalism is increasingly character led. Sure. The storytelling is always character led, but we but we've always we've always gone further in that. We've always really drilled down to try and make the story emotional. You know, I, I investigated child abuse in South Africa, which is one of the hardest stories I ever did. A story called "Cries in the Beloved Country," and um, and, I, and I remember going into the story. Where, the story is about this, the systematic sexual abuse of children mm-hmm. in South Africa. It's, you know, child rape in South Africa is is is. is i i don't know i don't i, I don't want to pluck the statistics mm-hmm. from uh out of my head but the, the so some of the highest child rape statistics in the world how do you tell a story about child rape in the sunny times magazine we really nervous about the story but i kept pushing and pushing with the story and and one of the things that i insisted was we a brilliant i worked with a brilliant photographer called Mariella Furer. she's a lebanese uh she, um, swiss and she lives in nairobi she's an incredible campaigning photographer and we got photographs of all of the uh, the, 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 the children had been drawing uh, the children who had been victims of rape in this clinic had been drawing their experiences in, in crayon and pencil just like children's drawings mm. and we ran them and we ran those images of the drawings in the magazine caused so much offense but for me that was push the boundary but also lateral thinking mm. we can tell the story through children's drawings mm. and I always think when I go into a story is how am I going to surprise you how am I going to surprise you? How am I going to tell you something that you don't know? How am I going to tell it in a way that you've never seen before? And that's why C. Spiracy falls short, because all see Spiracy is doing is taking other people's stories and then combining them into a single film. Mm-hmm. I would like to have seen him do more, to, you know, a lot more. Um, and and so. So the so the the secret sauce is lateral thinking. It's also finding the right character, finding the witness um and it's also going further so i i used to I, I used to give this talk called ends of the earth which is about how you've, you've really got it like when we reported in the war in the congo you've got to you've got to cross rivers you've got to try and go as far as you can into the hinterland to get to the story the the story is never where you think it is it's always downstream mm-hmm. it's always further and further and further away mm-hmm. and 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 if you're willing to, to to risk your life you're willing to go further than you find the story so, that's the other aspect of it. Um, I mean, there's definitely been moments in my career where I've had to make a decision to go down a road. You know, when we covered the war in Sri Lanka, we, we had to sneak um, uh, through the front line under all these blankets uh, in, a, in a minivan, uh, which is why I'm so banned from Sri Lanka for life. Um, I, I went to Sri Lanka to make a film three years ago and I got arrested at customs. And they were going to hold me, but I managed to get a call and it turned out I've got a criminal record in Sri Lanka because I'd covered the war and I'd crossed this imaginary line that the Sri Lankan government had put uh, into dispatches, saying no foreigner can cross this line and we crossed the line. And then I wrote about how we crossed the line Mm -hmm. in the story and then and then they used that story as evidence for a prosecutor. Um, So, yeah. And so, so, so I guess that that's the other thing is you've, you've really got to be willing to, to, to find novel ways to get to the story. Mm. I'm sure Tim Marshall must've said the same thing. I mean, you've, you've really, it's almost like, like you're talking about this story with your friend in Mexico, mm. jump on a plane, mm. even in COVID jump on a plane, just going to do the story. Going next month. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Good for you. Yeah. Then, then, you know, if you need any advice then let me know, but yeah, I mean, that, that's the key, right? It's just, you just got to react fast.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Talking about how you need to find a, a character or you need to find the witness, um, but you you ultimately need the narrative to drive the story, despite the fact it is the data and the facts that are convincing a person, right? But it's the narrative of the story that attracts you to it in the first place, makes it maybe more memorable, um, You know, makes it easier to watch, easy to consume, so forth. You um, now these days are focusing on climate change storytelling. And there was an anecdote that you mentioned to me in preparation for this, um, where you sort of realized that all of the stories you were telling were linked through the climate crisis. Could you uh, explain that to me?
1: Um, I, I, think it was a kind of slow epiphany. If there's such a thing is that I definitely got to a point where I Look, for background purposes, is that when you know when you become a foreign correspondent, um, your your focus is is lots of different things. It's natural disasters, it's conflict, it's you know geopolitical narratives, um, or, you know investigations looking at you know supply chains, or you know it's not like a cookie cutter approach, but mm. there are certain issues you cover. Um, and very early on, I started writing for um, a magazine called The Ecologist when I was a freelance journalist and when I was a freelance foreign correspondent at first. And I would write articles to The Ecologist, and The Ecologist was one of the first real magazines to tackle climate as a crisis. Mm-hmm. And I remember environmental correspondents in newsrooms, even as back as 2000, 2000 2004, sure. were, really were quite. Environmental correspondents were kind of. I've got a beard now, kind of grew years ago and never shaved off, but environmental correspondents had the beard and they sat in the corner. They never really went to the pub with you. You know, they weren't really. They weren't really the most popular guys in the in, in the playground. Okay, um, and and I and I, and it's extraordinary to think back, but they used to have to fight to get stories heard, and their stories were all kind of about nature, mm-hmm. or you know, you know, pandas not meeting at a zoo, mm-hmm. and the crisis that was creating around the uh, you know you know, um, panda populations and 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 then, you know, or doing stories. So they weren't really taken seriously as journalists, which was an absolute travesty. And and you can see that the the, 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 the environmental correspondents that have lasted are the, probably the best ones. I would say guys like John Vidal at the Guardian, peerless mm-hmm. environmental journalist. So so really you look at um that 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 um that climate, it's hard to tell environmental stories. And, I, and for me, the epiphany was probably in Tuvalu, and we looked at the Pacific and the, the Pacific Islanders who were escaping, literally, you know, islands that were flooding, their homes are underwater, and they're going to Auckland and they're going to um, to Australia to live. It was, you know, these kind of big boned Pacific Islanders in tiny little apartments in Auckland, and we did the story around their exile, and it kind of struck me at that point that. And, and then especially as I started to do a lot more supply chain stories, so I was looking at the cause of a lot of our problems, mm-hmm. but then also the, the result. Um, but then I would, you know, it's, that's a very conspicuous climate story. We, we made the argument that these were some of the world's first climate refugees. And I went to the Sundarbans and did the stories in Bangladesh, The Guardian, which later became the Rohingya story, which became a different story, geopolitical story, but started as this kind of climate story. Mm. and. It's very hard to tell a lot of stories as climate stories. People say, well, people will argue back or they'll be sceptical. So I, I kind of um, would then go and cover other stories like conflict or natural disasters. And, and, and you know, and, and I would never really link it to climate. It would just be a case of this story is about, you know, the, the conflict or like piracy in Somalia mm-hmm. is a really good example. So I spent quite a bit of time in Somalia covering the war there and, and, and also Al-Shabaab but also you know covering famines there but then the piracy story i did a big investigation into piracy and how i called it piracy inc how piracy had become this incorporation that had employed so many people not just the pirates but even i spoke to a hostage negotiator right his job was to negotiate with the pirates i spoke to a guy whose only job was to pilot the drone that carried the cash um i spoke to i, I spoke to so many different people that were linked to security around shipping and just created this map yeah. of an industry, but actually, what I didn't do was I didn't really think, why, why, why are they, why are these guys hijacking ships in the mm-hmm. first place?
0: So take take you that know? line, go. So go with me. I want to find where climate is at the root of that. Take that story specifically. You know, why are they working there?
1: So if you if you think of um, if you think of multiple issues, obviously you have the you have the you have the squeeze of the civil war in Somalia, okay, which is enduring, but then you also have um, uh, huge issues with toxic waste being dumped off the coast of Somalia. Right. So the fishing industry is decimated. So, you know, European uh, vessels are dumping toxic waste off Somalia and then the fish stocks are falling. um, then obviously you 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 know there, there's a there's a push towards Al shabaab right so you've you have you have all sorts of issues um, uh, uh, around Islam- Islamic extremism around fundamentalism and then, but then you also have drought which is mm-hmm. which is you know squeezing people into into Mogadishu and Dela and other cities and then so you've got all these different factors at play and you start to realise well has climate a factor in the piracy story and and it's easy just to say it's opportunism but you know, they were fishermen before. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of papers and reports that say that climate's a, a significant factor in, in, in the piracy story. And you could say the same about about lots of different narratives, you know, where climates at play. And I think if I was guilty of one thing is uh, certainly as is, is, is I was, you know, roaming the world telling stories is that I was reluctant to put climate into that story. I was always more focused on what the story actually was, but not looking at the bigger picture. And maybe you can argue that's not a job for, for a correspondent or a writer or a filmmaker, mm. that's actually a job for an academic or an NGO to go in and say, mm. look, these are the root causes. Um, but but and there's, there's a number of reasons for this. I think it's probably historical as well as the climate um, w- was quite a hard sell to news desks for many years, but also climate's a Frankenstein story. What you're basically saying is, is that you are as a reader or as a viewer are responsible for climate crisis, you're to blame. I and mean, that's one of the issues with supply chains, right? Mm. When I was investigating all these big companies, you know, investigating multinational companies, is that apart from the, 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 the you know, the, the battles you would have with companies, the, the legal battles, the, the threats, the, you know, I've had my phones tapped, my, you know, laptop hacked, know by corporations and 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 so apart from that cut and trust of investigating companies ultimately what you're seeing in a supply chain story is is that the children that are making your clothes um wouldn't be making your clothes if it wasn't for you you're responsible for that another frankenstein story Mm.
0: so what can we learn from that then um what's the answer what's the alternative to the frankenstein story saying you're buying cheap clothes, therefore you're part of the problem. You know, we're gonna put you on a moral equivalence to the person employing the children. Or say, uh, with the climate change, you're driving a diesel car, you're big part of the problem, you're on the moral equivalence to the people dumping the toxic waste off the coast of Somalia, causing piracy, um, supporting Al-Shabaab. You, you see what I mean? Like, what, what's the alternative to that narrative um, if the Frankenstein one doesn't work?
1: So, so when you're trying to convince um... You're, try, you're trying to convince. I guess. I guess a newspaper in particular is is really trying to keep their readers and, and and really and and obviously we get a lot of data now from online storytelling and, and who who's interested in what, mm-hmm. what issues and everything else. It's quite hard sell in some respects to, to write a, a damning expose that basically says you're to blame for everything here that's happening. You need to change your lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You've got to, you've got to change the way you shop. You've got to change the way you eat. You've got to change your diet. You've got to change the, the car you drive, everything else. And, and that's, that's always been a challenge from, 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 from historically been a challenge. I think that's less of the case now, mm-hmm. what I will say. Um, but yeah, but so, so I think that many correspondents that my, uh, you know, experience are, are definitely, equally as guilty of not drawing that red line between climate and the issues that, that surround them. I mean, I don't want to go into too much detail about the Syrian civil war because it's contested. But, you know, the, the argument could be made is when, when, when we investigated ISIS, persecuting LGBTQ citizens and throwing them off roofs and killing them and torturing them. And we went to safe houses in Lebanon and interviewed survivors. And we did that story and pieced it together somewhere in that incredible uh, uh, human rights travesty is a climate story mm-hmm. um and, you know because there's very solid evidence that says the Syrian you know if if it wasn't caused by climate but climate is a fracture mm-hmm. in the the civil war in syria but then there's other people that will put equal weight to say well that's not true so so then you become involved in a debate about w- whether it's a climate sure. story or whether you know, as we used to say in south africa is it a zebra or is it a giraffe right <laughs> I in africa it's like is it a zebra or is it a giraffe so, so, so yeah, so, it, and I think this, there, there becomes an issue with labeling stories as well, right? We're labeling the story a climate story mm-hmm. or fundamentally it's a story about, you know, human rights violations and, um, the right to love who you love and fundamentalism, but, and, and, and climate can be overwhelming as well. It's like, if, if, if your top lines climate, then the story has to be about climate all the way through. So. It's a uh, it's, it's a challenging thing to do to draw a red link between climate and everything that you write mm-hmm. as well.
0: So uh, it sounds like if you're thinking about how can we change climate change storytelling, or at least how can it be done in a different way, the sort of emotional appeal that you get from talking about how religious fundamentalism is, um, uh, you know, uh, um, causing this moral failure between for treatment of LGBTQ people. Um, the sort of emotional appeal one gets for that, the empathy that they would feel towards, um, both the religious argument and then also the LGBTQ argument rather than the Frankenstein saw of the climate change, you want that same emotional appeal to be, um, drawing back to the climate influence on, uh, why the religious fundamentalism might be going after the LGBTQ. Um, you know, I, I think I had a—I a, think I had that question framed a lot better in my mind, but, it's like a distinction between how the story is being told uh that you're sort of getting at the
1: nuances of the problem right you have to 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 tell a climate story effectively you almost have to be explicit It has to be um you know we're we're on this we're so so I, i i went to senegal recently to research a documentary and and interestingly I'd covered the migration story before in depth. Um, you know, I'd I'd followed the the routes. Um, you know, from from West Africa, across the Sahel, Libya to the Mediterranean to the UK, and and you know, it was one of the first journalists to really cover those sinkings, the, the sinkings of the ships. Um, mm. you know, in the boats in the crossing, which is now, as we know, is <clears throat> is fairly normal. We we see, <clears throat> you know, hundreds of thousands coming across every year. Um, and when I was in Senegal um, at the end of last year, I, I interviewed young farmers and to try and understand that the desire to go to the West and social media plays a part in that because, you know, any. I mean, I live in Barcelona and here in Barcelona, we have Senegalese migrants um, all over the city, they're, they're working, you know, they, they collect scrap metal, they, they sell things on the beach when the beaches are open and and they're not really getting anywhere in the economic ladder. But they're sending messages back home saying life's great in spain you know they're showing their new clothes or they're, you know i'm not exaggerating their lifestyle but that that in some respects is connecting to people back home or saying well why am i here on a farm trying to grow potatoes mm-hmm. i should be in spain right with my with my cousin or my best friend mm-hmm. and so there's that emotional pull that brings migrants in waves but i started to realize when we interviewed these families that, that the, 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 in the in the north, I was in St. Louis. The land's arid; they can't grow anything. Mm-hmm. And and you know they're they're being bequeathed land by the parents and the grandparents who grew that land and tilled that land for for decades, and then they're trying and they can't grow anything on it. And then the the, the grandfather's saying, "Well, well, the, the land was good for me," but actually the evidence says well, actually the land's not the same as it was thirty years ago. The Earth's not the same. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been a lot of desertification in northern senegal there's a there's a lot of salt um um the name for it um but basically there's a lot of estuaries sea estuaries there and there's salt scorches the earth And, and so their kind of future as farmers is in jeopardy yeah i think that you know so so that is a climate story and actually we're telling that as a climate story that's the aim um so i think that when you tell an explicit story like that it's easier to understand. Mm-hmm. But when it becomes nuanced, like, well, okay, there might be a factor at play with climate that links to this, that links to that, people don't really wanna buy it. Mm-hmm. And this is an interesting area because there was, a, there was a study done in the 60s by Brown and Williamson, a tobacco company, and it was a leaked memo. And the memo, the memo was called, doubt is our product. And I, I, I talk about this at Cambridge, right? And the idea, as you know, is that if you can create enough doubt around an issue, then people will doubt it. So with cigarettes, right? So what they did is that there was a lot of um, links to cancer and smoking, and so they thought, well, what we need to do is we need to get medical uh, reports, we need to get scientists, we need to get doctors to start putting reports out. We need to create foundations that examine links between cigarettes, and we we basically put enough um, doubt into the into the the market mm-hmm. so that you people would think, well, the
0: science pro it, yeah.
1: And it's exactly the same with climate. So this is one of the issues that I get really frustrated about is language, um, climate and language. So it's the same drill, you know, fossil fuel companies, um, you know, doubt is our product again, right? Well, so a so lot, you know, K Street lobbyists in the States and in, in, in the 80s, uh, you know, create different language like the greenhouse effect or climate change or um, a global warming. These are words that sound They don't sound, they sound reasonably benign. Mm -hmm. They don't sound like we're we're in a crisis Mm -hmm. here. I mean, and how newspapers approach languages, you know, the Guardian to the eternal credit made a decision that we're going to call it the climate crisis. That's it, we're going to call it a crisis, we're going to call it out. Greenpeace, NGO sector tend to call it a crisis, but other news organisations say still use global warming. Mm -hmm. And 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 so when you can't actually call it the right the same thing when there's no uniformity then then the doubt's sure. getting into the Classic to, to, to the language of yeah of climate yeah and and that seeps into storytelling as well because if there's a doubt that this story is linked to climate and you're focused on something else you're not going to put the energy into just drawing this red line mm-hmm. um, you're going to be focused on look these people have gone through appalling suffering because of a conflict or you know, or, you know, that uh, these people are going to Europe for, for socio-economic reasons. So I think that as journalists, we need to go deeper and we need to um, we need to really start to understand the impact climate's having on, on the stories we cover. Yeah, And, and that could be regionalised. I mean, for me, the future of climate change storytelling is actually, I mean, one of the arguments I made recently was that cities should employ storytellers so that they can tell climate change stories in their own cities. Because when I when, when I'm trying to tell a climate change story in, in story in Peru or in Greenland, right? Okay, that's there's a huge international audience, right? They're interested, but it's not a mainstream story. But if you're telling the story in Barcelona or in Stockholm, then people are going to think, okay, well, this is my neighbourhood, you know. And I think that that's the key to successful climate change storytelling: as is, is you know, far travelled foreign correspondent is go super narrow and regionalised, tell the story in your own country, in your own
0: neighbourhood. Mm. If you can, if you're able. So, it, what's the what's the sort of end goal of this, if if you have one, or at least vision of what it's going to become? Is the idea that if you can cancel out a lot of the misinformation and you know confirm climate crisis as a as a ubiquitous sort of language approach to the story, um, create really effective climate change climate change uh, climate crisis storytelling? Um, it, what, what's the end goal? Do you just want the misinformation to be cancelled out? So say the public utility, the tax dollars can be spent more effectively to actually render a change. Um, I'm just trying to get at the end goal because I think maybe what, you know, the climate crisis is so international. I I don't know if we have another, um, I don't know if we have another threat that is genuinely international it affects absolutely everyone and for that reason it does make it quite different to something else like say you know religious fundamentalism which might be something that we don't say every day but we might want to um create a difference to stop as well
1: i i mean i, I i've got lots of ideas but i mean i actually think that the best way to tell stories is to make them bulletproof okay so so data is the key to telling effective climate change stories so so I, I made a film in Greenland called Open Water that was released cinema released. it ran Guardian documentaries. And and when we went there, I knew we wanted to tell a story about how people were, were, were living, in, living in the ocean around Greenland and how their lives had changed. But um, I knew also that, that I wanted to get data and, and I wanted to make this link between climate change and mental illness. And I reached out to this organization who were trying to poll sentiment in Greenland. So Greenland's population, I don't know, fifty thousand, maybe fifty-six thousand. Tiny, right? Yeah. Um, but they had done a sample poll that was like, um, I think four thousand people, which might sound like nothing, right? But that's that the equivalent in the states would be ten million. Mm-hmm. So, so at the end of the day, they're they they've got this incredible poll that is beyond scientific dispute because it's it's taken this huge slice of of communities and and the, the national population. And one of the questions in the poll was. Um, uh, do you feel that climate, the climate change, is affecting your health, your happiness, your mental illness? And and, and the, the, the you know overwhelming answer was yes. Mm-hmm. And 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 there's this phrase invented by an Australian academic called solastalgia. Solastalgia is a, is an incredible term. What it means is is feeling homesick in your own home. Mm. So uh, it's this kind of discomforting feeling that everything's changing around you, but you don't you can't explain why. So when you were a kid, you grew up in the mountain. The glacier was 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 all the way down to the ocean and now it's two kilometers back in land and the, the the sea temperature's different the weather's changing there's there's things changing around you that you can't account for so you're feeling homesick in your own home because you don't recognize your sure. home
0: then you and i started
1: reason. to think so, yeah yeah and, and i started to think so nostalgia and and then and then, then the data was overwhelming and then so we we did the story around mental illness and climate change it's the first survey ever done really looking at mental illness and climate change and this is a thread that we're seeing in a lot of storytelling now around climate: is that is the smart journalists are using data because then when people come back at you and say, "Well, that's that's just a fairy story. You can't link climate change to this." Well, actually, well it re- the signs and the data, and and I think that we need to do that as a story as storytellers. We need to try and find these proof points that can that, that can put the story beyond the shadow of a doubt. Mm. And, and and I think there's other ways to do it. One of my I, I spent quite a bit of time embedding with scientists in Greenland. Um, part of a, a film I made. And one of the things that I criticized the scientists, scientists for was talking to each other. Scientists are all about peer review. You know, hmm. let's, let's, let's publish in periodicals. Let's, you know, and it's almost like they're speaking to a closed audience. Yeah, a
0: couple thousand you people know, might how, read how, in its entire lifetime. Yeah. Precisely. And one, one of the things that we were
1: looking at was really interesting was algae and how um, algae is changing color, effectively creating sunscreen um and um be- as it gets closer to the surface and that is exacerbating melt in ice sheets it's a really incredible sure. field of study and and yet nobody really knows about this right unless journalists like us come along and make a film or write a long-form piece about it but how can we get scientists to, to work more with journalists to try and talk to a bigger audience how can we you know create more effective forums to tell these stories mm-hmm. There's lots that needs to be done,
0: Dan. I fear there is a lot of nihilism when it comes to the climate crisis specifically, because I'm thinking there there has been lots of um, you know emotional movies made, say by you know the classic from Al Gore uh, to the film Leonardo DiCaprio made, to say even more recently the prominence of Greta Thunberg. Like um, th- I'm afraid, climate the climate crisis, kind of what I was trying to lean on earlier in the question I had before was it's such a, it's such an ideological, uh, um, um, it's such an ideological position that people sort of hold central to them and are, it's seemingly willing to dismiss the data, which can prove them wrong based on ideological grounds. Like that's a leftist scientist, for example, like it's a a concerning amount of people are willing to discount the facts because a, um, scientist comes from a a political perspective you understand what i'm asking here like um it, it makes it makes climate different to say another topic that you might be able to speak about
1: i think that there's definitely fatigue around climate storytelling i think people are I, I, someone someone i, I was in a, a kind of forum recently and someone was was criticizing um uh the the Greta effect saying that that actually that her um, uh, appearances at the UN and 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 like her relationship with Trump, who they they, they created this they created this mm. good guy and uh, bad guy scenario around around their dynamic and, and the, the image of her scowling at Trump and everything else was the opposite of what we need. Is we need soft diplomacy, mm. right? We, we don't because that makes it political. Um, yeah. yeah, that makes it and, and, and personal as well. And and but then at the same time, what an incredible impact she's had in terms of galvanizing youth. Um, but that but we've seen that dissipate in in COVID. Um, for obvious reasons, right, and a lot of kids are at school and everything else, is that going to resurrect itself when COVID's passed? I mean, one of the things that frustrates me is COVID's not really being told is, I mean, I remember COVID's not being told as a climate story, and it could be, in um, and, 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 and a smarter way. I mean, I, I, mean, I remember being in, in, um, in the, the border between Uganda and Congo when there was an Ebola breakout, and, and one of the reasons that that this had happened is that there'd been a lot of clearing, logging and clearing into the into the rainforest, um, illegal logging. Um, and the more that we encroach in wild animal territory, the more viruses are going to emerge from from rainforest or forest tracks. And, and the closer that we lived, you know, living cheek by gel with wildlife is going to expose us to viruses, right, that will make the leap eventually, mm-hmm. which we saw with HIV, which we saw with, with Ebola, and which we, we definitely saw with yep. COVID as well. I think that's beyond dispute. So but how many Climate stories are we're seeing around COVID. Mm, yeah. We're not seeing yeah, many at all. And, and, it's and, more about and, territorial
0: and, and, Did China manufacture or did they not? Yeah,
1: yeah, of course, yeah. But the, but at the same time, the, the more that we encroach on, the more that cities grow, the more that we we encroach in greenfield space and, and forests, and and the more that wildlife comes into cities, the more exposed we are to viruses, and, mm. and 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 the pandemic as a consequence. So there seems to still be an opportunity for me around around. Um, the viral leap and climate change and that's that's the story that needs to be told urgently and yeah, to a certainly. global audience um but with with certainly with with the fatigue around uh um i, I don't want to say Greta, the fatigue around the, the kind of greater message um because i think that, that she definitely had galvanized and there was a lot of momentum until covid hit mm. until the pandemic hit but I think there's definitely scope for more soft diplomacy for, for, for smarter data-based journal- journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that ultimately the best journalism now is funded by, so the film that I made for the Guardian documentaries was funded by the Packard Foundation in in, in California mm-hmm. who do a lot of work in oceans. Increasingly foundations are, are funding journalism, climate change journalism, because newspapers don't have the, the budgets to go to the ends of the earth to tell the stories. Mm-hmm. Um, And that brings us full circle back to the conspiracy story is that, okay, well, what if we were to just do a more thought out story over six episodes that was going to look at this issue in a deep dive rather than than try to, try to kind of grab, you know, grab the attention of an international audience in an hour and a half. Um, So I'm not sure that answers the question, but what I think what I'm trying to say is, is that, is that we need to identify the storytelling opportunities around climate change to 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 win people over to to try and convince them um you've got to try and win over the skeptics Mm -hmm. and one of the things i i argue argue a lot with the guardian certainly is you're not really trying to convert a guardian audience right to a message because (laughs) if you're reading the guardian in the first place Mm -hmm. then you should you know you're 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 probably on board it's it's the it's the gray areas you want to target Uh you want to get you know um, but then I worked at the Sunday Times for so many years, and you know, and and you know, a lot of people criticised Rupert Murdoch, but he invested in our Sunday Times, invested in our human rights journalism. You know, my colleague Marie Colvin, who was who was unfortunately killed in Syria, um, um, you know, was was what probably the best of us, and and and, and there was investment there, and um, but. The, the you know the fiscal realities of newspapers caught up with everyone, mm-hmm. and that's why we ended up having less foreign coverage.
0: And and uh, the complexity of things. This is a theme that I've um, spoken about a lot historically with this compo- uh, with this podcast. Is that really as humans, you look at most domains, we are barely scratching the surface of understanding the complexity of things, the true second, third, fourth order effects. And I think that would be a great um, a great angle to actually approach a bit of climate change storytelling, is educating through example, what the second, third, fourth order effects are of ecological change, because ecosystems are obviously complex beyond our understanding. You don't know what a change here is gonna do down the line. And clearly there is a connection between um, China, Russia's environmental approach and COVID-19. Right. I can really take any X and Y variable and ultimately explain a huge story from it because such is the complexity of the world that we live in. Um, and that's sort of just a comment that I, that I want to let stand. But I also wanted to say to you that because um, we're coming towards the end of the time, um, you know, I'm also quite optimistic about the future of uh the climate crisis not being something that's debated it's it's known and acknowledged and rather than any time being spent worrying about whether it's man-made or not the um all the worry and attention is going into be how what are we going to do about this and i just say that um not purely anecdotally because then i know that um that's my own sort of bubble which the anecdotes would come from but also just um through observation a very wide uh, cast lens, if if you could say so much of the climate skepticism comes from, uh, older generations, quite frankly, you know, my generation of the mid nineties and younger, we are the sort of next generation that are going to inherit the power that are going to be leading the, the companies that are going to be writing the journalism, making the TV programs. And most of us are really on board. And so I just want to, uh, you know, leave that optimistic message with you and see if perhaps you agree, or if you see differently um, than I do from a generational shift in the, in, the, in the way we look at the climate crisis.
1: One thing, I think one thing, so you're talking about the generational message, right? Who's, who's, who's buying into climate mm. and everything else is like, so let's take the example of India, okay? So, so I, 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 was based, I lived in New Delhi, I was based in India, covering South Asia. I covered Pakistan, Afghanistan, Burma, Sri Lanka, mm. um, uh, Nepal at a time when all of them were at war. Amazing. And, 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 and one of the interesting things about, about working in South Asia is, is, is politics as politics is dominated by, by a certain generation. So in India, you don't really become a successful politician until you're in your sixties and seventies. And and so, so what we have, so what I know historically, right? So, 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 I, so I, I investigated, um, the kidnapping of Christian uh, Coptic girls um, in in Egypt, and then we invest, we went undercover and did this stuff in Egyptian cotton, and I got myself banned for life from Egypt. So I can never go back to Egypt. I can't go back to the Sudan and banned from the Sudan. I mentioned Sri Lanka earlier and mm-hmm. banned for life from Sri Lanka. Um, from a human rights journalism, and so there was a time when human rights journalism was was a, a surefire way to get blackballed, like Myanmar. So back to the we're now it's back cool. to basics yeah. again because I've been to Myanmar recently, but I was banned for like five six years because of my 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 undercover mm. work there. So 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 the countries were banning human rights journalists, right? And they were and 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 then they started clamping down on NGOs. So as the NGOs became more journalistic, NGOs like. Human Rights Watch and um, Global Witness, they, they started becoming kind of quasi activists, mm-hmm. right? So the, the dynamic of the NGO changed from us coming in and helping you to actually calling you out, which is what Amnesty's done brilliantly for, for many years. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what's happening now is, is so then sorry, but then the then the, then the, then the, the government started banning NGOs, right? And um, from from being involved in the human rights sphere and in, diff- in, in different countries. Now what we're seeing, is the same thing with climate is that grassroots ngos that are tackling climate are being shut down they're having resources pulled they're, they're being intimidated they're being murdered mm-hmm. in the field they're being they're being kidnapped we see in brazil we see in uh, china we see in india and, and and the challenges that that you face there is that and the people in government who are running these countries are of an older generation very often mm-hmm. is the case um and the the climate story presents a threat to their existence, but to also to their, their economies, mm-hmm. how, you know, we, you know, we've got to shut down supply chains. We've got to make things more, more, um, ethical, or, or we've, we've, we've got I a, mean, once um, you start trying
0: to source different types of energy prices are going to renewable energy in a developing nation. That's an extraordinarily difficult thing to face. Yeah.
1: I mean, I did this story years ago. I went down the Ganges and did story, the story for Sunny Times magazine cover a river that lost its soul. I had this idea to travel down the Ganges and, because the Ganges was dying, a lot of bank money was going into to try and to try and uh, to clean the river. But the river, the, the money was being siphoned mm-hmm. off and stolen, right stolen. And, um, and at the time, I interviewed a, a swami who was on hunger strike for the river near Varanasi, um, Benares. And he was on hunger strike and, and he started talking to me about the Chipko, and the chip core, tri, uh, a, a tribe in India who were the original tree huggers. And when they were clearing the forest, I think it was the British were clearing the forest um, in back in colonial days. The Chipko would hug the trees and tie themselves to trees to protect the forest. And he said, "We are the original environmental campaigners. We are the we are the original um, hug tree huggers." And the story was incredible when he told me it. I just thought, "That's wow. And then, and then, and I remember travelling down the Ganges and you know the ashes of the dead and the water and just trying to kind of trying to write this piece. And I wrote this. I wrote this. Intro to the story about the dying embers of stars. And then, and I hadn't thought about it for many years until I was in Greenland and, and I was um, uh, near a glacier uh, in the south and this iceberg just started to fall apart in front of our eyes. And all of these shattered remnants of the iceberg were just floating around us. It was really dramatic. And I, and I, I flashed back to the Ganges for some reason. And, and what you were saying earlier about things being interlinked is why am I thinking about the Ganges when I'm in the Arctic? I'm just seeing these smashed embers of an iceberg, and the, the dying embers of, of 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 peoples, or the ashes are thrown into the river, and I'm thinking everything's decaying around me. Mm. It felt, I felt like quite a profound moment, and there's no logic for that mm. that that stream of thought. So I think the danger is that we need to soft power is not really we've got to have to win over governments, right? Bolsonaro and his stance on climate in, in India is a climate skeptic. You know, we we see the same with Modi in India mm-hmm. and we see it in other countries, especially in Africa mm-hmm. because climate threatens climate change, storytelling, climate change, campaigning, crisis, campaigning, climate crisis, storytelling, and climate crisis, campaigning, threatens economies. Yeah,
0: certainly. Um, And, uh, and yeah, that's a huge issue. It, it Look, it's, it's, um, it's a seemingly insurmountable issue actually when you look at it that way, which is what is the, what, what's, what's, what's an incentive, you know, show me an incentive. I'll show you an outcome. What's an incentive? Oh, so you're saying now I can't deforest the Amazon to plant the soy to sell to the West. Well, now I have 10,000 people unemployed who are going to turn to maybe crime instead, who are going to do X, Y, and Z. That, what's the incentive there, you know? And this is, and this is always where it comes back to me when I think about climate change. It's like, well, what, what, what actually can be done about it? What can I do about it? Or what can an individual do about it beyond just removing our you know phone charger from the wall or something like that? And, um, and, and, and that's the difficult question, right? Um, you know, and that's the, the that's where the, <laughs> the role of really good, uh, journalism can, can fill or try and answer the question or propose solutions or, you know, um, force a very bad hand, right? Like if you can somehow get to the point where, well, now it's just illegal to deforest these trees, despite the fact that it's good for your economy, you're not going to be allowed to do it given the pressure from X, Y, and Z superpower. You, you know what I'm getting at here? I'm sort of just playing out a scenario in my head, but, um, that is the thing with the climate crisis uh there is an inherent nihilism to looking at it because it's always like well what can i actually you know do about it um i don't know if you ever reflect on that at all
1: well there's also a danger that 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 it becomes about a western narrative focused on so when i when i lived in india the tata um released the nano which was the, the the first little hatchback car And there was a lot of hysterical reporting around that that you know india's now got hatchback it's going to be terrible for the environment it's going to you know um i mean delhi's traffic's bad enough but at the end of the day that that it's okay for western economies to to you know to 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 build up um huge car brands and and and, yeah but at the same time we're gonna we're gonna start judging india for 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 wanting consumer goods for buying washing machines Mm -hmm. for you know I, i i you know there's lots of stories about how the system, you know, people were, were wanting, you know, white goods, washing machines, dishwashers, things like that. And, and there was a lot of Western Western reporting around that criticizing it. It's like, well, so at the end of the day, what people are trying to improve their lives. Yep. And and I think that once you start going in and telling people how to live their lives, and you're, you're losing your audience, yep. you're losing, you're losing credibility yep. as a storyteller. Um, but I mean, look, you can talk about climate change and climate change storytelling for, for forever. Mm-hmm. But I think that, that, that what is certainly true is, is that my final takeaway from this is that I think that we need to more needs to be done to tell stories in a smart way. Mm-hmm. And and, a, and but I what I always put at the heart of my journalism is emotion. You've really got to tell an emotional yeah. story. You've got to connect with people in my rules of storytelling, surprise and emotion and and, and then data increasingly yep. so I'm, I'm i'm going to prove it i'm going to surprise you and i'm probably going to make you emotionally i mean so one of the one of the interesting things that they did this study around um different emotions and storytelling and uh and one of the one of the questions that was raised it was in a forum i was involved in and was it is shame an emotion that counts can you shame people into believing <laughs> something and and, the, and advertisers would say traditionally that you can't, that you can't do that. That's the worst thing that you can do. You can't use shame as a tool mm-hmm. to convince people or win people over, but I'm not sure. I, I, rem- I remember the story about the little boy on the beach in Greece, who, the body of the, the refugee. That he was, I think he was about one or two, and, and that photograph went viral around the world. And this little baby that had that, you know, drowned in the Mediterranean as a migrants had come over from Syria there was shame involved in that in that mm. image the world felt shame and i think there have been moments like that when journalism has made people feel ashamed mm-hmm. and and it's had a profound impact those are the stories we remember so as journalists should we be shaming people into to um taking issues of climate human rights seriously i would argue
0: we should yep. do you think um david attenborough maybe dropped the ball a bit by not emphasizing the, um, impact of the climate crisis throughout his beautifully romantic, um, career of documentary making, documenting wildlife in the world. Gosh, I know. Well, he's up, the reason up, we love nature. Up, he's up, the reason, well, but, but,
1: David Attenborough is the, the reason we, 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 love nature so much. We grew up with him mm. and he's done so much, right? I mean, I, I think maybe that's just as much as, you know, politicize David Atten, David Attenborough. Sure. David Attenborough is is is, is probably the, not really what, what the consumer wants. he's a great example of soft power, mm-hmm. just his 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 incredible, um, you know, uh, films over the years, making us appreciate and love nature. And um, so I don't think that he can be called out necessarily for for, for not taking. Mm-hmm. A, a,
0: no, it just a, it a just sort of came, the climate issue with more zeal. Yeah, it just sort of came to mind. I thought maybe, but. Um, More interestingly, did you ever notice throughout your career, um, a impact from your storytelling that actually stopped a consumer from purchasing, um, because of the story that you uncovered, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, certainly fast fashion. I mean, I was, you know, amongst a few other journalists, we were very, very dedicated to exposing major corporations for employing children in the supply chain for, for horrific, um, practices and, also for um, pollution around fast fashion in, in China and Africa and India and Bangladesh, Pakistan. And um, and I remember I remember going to London for an award ceremony and I'd been living in India. And you're kind of disconnected as a foreign correspondent. You're not really, you're not really connected to what's happening at home. Mm. And I remember going home and, and walking to the hotel in Mayfair and and I walked down Oxford Street and there was a huge protest outside the store complete uh, people um, campaigning against shared labor and I'd, I'd exposed this company previously and they, they were like practically smashing the windows mm-hmm. there was hundreds of people with banners when I started to think at that point well, actually you know we the, the kind of journalists like me who are, who are doing this and exposing these companies and breaking into sweatshops and getting into fist fights to expose this mm-hmm. we are actually making an impact a direct impact but I think now um, certainly there's the so you you just there's definitely a cause, and if you, you you can see the effect you're having, but I I think it's more often than not it's really nuanced. You can't really, unless some people are having a protest or you know, I'm not sure you should really be proud of the fact that they're trying to smash the windows of a of a, of a, of a company. But
0: um... Well, if they're exploiting children, it's I think it's worthwhile reaction.
1: But it goes it goes back to this idea about a shame and emotion that counts. Mm-hmm. So you know, but you're you're, solic- you're soliciting a reaction, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and I think that's one of the things that gives me great great confidence in the future is the the spirit of protest is alive. We see it mm-hmm. now, right? Even, I mean, in, in you know, in Barcelona where I live, you know, people are always protesting, right? But at the same time, they they bang the. The pots, right? We're all together. We're protesting mm-hmm. together. You know, there's never been more. You know, youth protests, the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, even the, the movement around Greta Thunberg and the, the protests around climate around schools. Is there definitely seems to be protest as a spirit of the mm-hmm. age, and that's only a good thing. That's yeah, a healthy really. thing. That's a positive thing for society. So if, if we can, as storytellers, we can be part of that, are a catalyst for protest, and I think
0: that's a positive as well. On on the similar lines, um, because I, I asked the question provocatively, but I, I definitely do think that a good story can change a consumer's mind to the point where it isn't just the price incentive that dictates their behaviour, which is what you know a really rational economist view of the world will have you believe. Uh, you just look at the shift away from meat and dairy products. Um, throughout Europe, North America, Australia, New Zealand. I, I don't know about evidence of Asia or Latin America or Africa of a similar trend, but nonetheless, a lot of people have made a decision that goes against one of their you know primary motivations, right? The love of meat or even the cost of meat. They've just gone, no, it's bad for the environment, therefore I'm not going to do it. So it is a story that has managed to change a consumer's behavior. And one imagines with good, better, and more climate crisis storytelling. You know, I'm just waiting for the expose into the deforestation of the Amazon. Uh, Maybe it already exists, I just haven't heard of it, but I'm just waiting for that to come around to really be like a final nail into the coffin of a lot of the feed that goes into cows. Or something I noticed more recently is, even before Seaspiracy, a lot more attention being paid to the amount of um, antibiotics that is put into our food, into our fish into our pigs, into our cows, you know, 80% of the world's antibiotics is for agriculture. And what's the consequences of that? And these sort of stories are actually influencing the way that the consumer is consuming. The individual is consuming. Yeah. So there's a lot of optimism to be taken from that, that and also the generational shift, you know, that and also the way that finance is being geared towards alternative energies, you know, and also away from traditional energies. Like there is, um, um, I think I think you can take a very you know optimistic worldview in the face of the climate crisis, despite the fact it might seem at times an insurmountable um, roadblock. Okay, this is a
1: good
0: to Sum up. Yeah. Um, two baseline questions I would like to ask everyone, not related to what we're speaking about. What country are you most bullish on as you look into the future? And you know what I mean by bullish, right? If, oh, you could, delicious- if you could invest in it, it would give you the best return. But but don't think of it as like, oh, I put money in, money out. Think of it as just a country that you're really excited to see. Something you think uh-huh. is going to do great things just as you look into the future. <laughs> That's a really good question. Um,
1: okay. Okay. Um, so I, I'd like to think, it, obviously, Africa is my first love. Mm-hmm. I'd like to think it would be Africa somewhere. Okay. Um, I would like to think it would be Madagascar, which is my favorite place in Africa. Okay. I, I doubt it will be Can bit. you explain um, why? Well, no, I think cause Madagascar is just a extraordinary place. So, so few people have been there, but it's just the most beautiful country. It's enormous. It's got incredible people. It's got this great melting pot of cultures. The, the, you know, the one place that a lot of foreign correspondents who go to Madagascar, the NGO workers, they think that it reminds them of Nepal. Here we are off the coast of Africa and it feels like we're in Kathmandu and mm-hmm. you're in, in Tanariva, the capital of Madagascar. Um, that's a country that I would love to succeed in just because it's just, it's natural beauty. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, um, it's people, uh, but it's had a really difficult time with bad governance, sure. like m- many African countries. If I'm, 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 a bullish about, about this future, it's I, I'd, I'd like to, I'd, idealistically, mm-hmm. that would be, the, that would be my choice. I'm not sure that I would be bullish about it.
0: Yeah. Well, let's, uh, try and, put some optimism yeah. into the universe for a bullish Madagascan future. I, I would say, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it looks like an amazing place. I'd certainly love to go there. I, to be frank though, I actually don't know anything about the country. I know that they're almost um, universally responsible for vanilla production, right? But what, what, what else do they have going for them?
1: Um, I, I did a really interesting story there on Coco Bandits on, it's a brilliant supply chain moral dilemma, um, which, which was basically um the harvests of cocoa farmers in the north near the vanilla coast actually Mm. um were being stolen at gunpoint by bandits and then sold to the same company that was actually buying their cocoa so the supply chain was being corrupted Mm. by crime but still ending up in the same place it's a really good moral story moral dilemma narrative around around supply chains but cocoa um there's gas and oil, obviously, which is which is struggling. The economy is struggling. Vanilla and the vanilla coast, the emeralds in the south, and and and, and uh, precious stones. There's there's a lot of um, uh, scope for palm oil, and yeah, it's an it's an incredible place. Timber,
0: obviously, mm-hmm. one of the great stories. That these are all tried it. You know, they're all things to be taken from rather than created. Well, that's the yeah. other,
1: that's the other problem, right? right. Is that it's a, that's the you know the economy uh, the economic model. It's a great story from Madagascar about an NGO that, so I was investigating logging, illegal logging. I remember going through this jungle and seeing this kind of cliff face. I wrote about it and the cliff face looked like it was made of leather. And then there was a crack of a rifle and all these bats took off. Wow. (laughs) It was just, it was just their wings. And it was, it was so into the embedded into the rock. I was like, how is like all these bats around us? And so in in, deep in the forest, the Chinese were illegally logging rosewood. Mm and an ngo eventually went it's a great story so this ngo went into to the, the, the same rainforest um a, a year later and they embedded microchips into uh, logs that had been um illegally harvested mm-hmm. by uh, chinese chain gangs effectively in in the north of madagascar and then they were taken down to thomasina the port uh, and they were taken to china and the tracking device followed the logs all the way to um uh, at a, a port near uh, near Shanghai and then tracked them further to uh, a logging company uh, in China. And then they went to China and they put uh, they, they found the same Rosewood uh, batch and they put chips into the, the new batch from China and they followed it all the way to America where it was uh, delivered to Gibson Guitars. Oh, no way. One, one of the most iconic guitar brands in the world. Yeah and the the rosewood that they were getting for their beautiful guitars played by everyone from johnny cash down um was coming from uh, madagascan rainforest wow. it's a great story it's a great story um so so there's timber and but yeah you're right i mean it's one of those one of those i mean what you really want in in, uh, in madagascar is is the the economy to to to, to be based around Development, education—you know how can how can technology yep. help help these communities? have been build the economy up that mm-hmm. way instead of the classic resort resource costs, mm. which it has. You it- if you get the chance to go, it would be top of my list to you, hundred
0: percent. Nice, amazing. I'll uh, I'll certainly write to you before I go down there. Honestly, you know my ambition is endless when it comes to going places and discovering things. So if it's possible and within the uh, within the monetary budget, I'm definitely doing it. But you give another fantastic example of tracing the supply chain. Like that's such a fascinating look into the world. And this is also something for another conversation. But I don't know if you're familiar with Eric Townsend and Smarter Markets. Um, it's an Abex technologies the great company that are trying to sort of, uh, tokenize financial markets. So there is absolute transparency every step along the way, which means, and they, they use it specifically for copper production. Cause that's where it's linked to the interests of a holding company. But nonetheless, um, it can be also applied to the cocoa supply line, the coffee supply chain, um, the vanilla, the rosewood, you know, you name it, uh, the cotton, um, And that is also assuming the promise is real, uh, game changing, totally game changing because companies can no longer hide behind supply chains that just don't, the, whose story doesn't get told. It all becomes transparent. Um, but again, conversation for another time. Final question, Dan, uh, what two people would you witness a conversation between from history? Sorry for it being narrowed down, but, um, If, if, if there's anyone that comes to mind, you know, great role models or influences that have been on your life, any two people of history,
1: just put them together and just to have it, listen to them having a chat, a podcast, (laughs) if you will. (laughs) Um, Nina Simone and Mary McKeever.
0: Okay. Do you want to say why?
1: I just think they come from such extraordinary backgrounds. They're both very similar in the sense that they, you know, they're iconic artists, but they came from this kind of um, civil rights struggle, different countries I mean South Africa is my, still regard it as my home. Mm-hmm. I lived here for many years. Um, obviously her legacy is in exile and then Simone's legacy is in exile, um, in the Caribbean and in Africa. And then just the idea of the pair of them just sitting and talking about their shared experiences, mm-hmm. but obviously that militancy that they had as yeah. well, they were both quite, you know, they were very militant. They were involved with the ANC and they were involved with, with, with Black Power. And um, uh, sorry, they were involved with the ANC and they were involved with the Black Panthers in their own respects and how their uh, how their, their life stories were, were kind of almost identical, mm-hmm. but yet yeah, they had both the most incredible natural ability as entertainers. Um, but then they're also deeply troubled as well, and I'd be really interested to, to hear them just talk. Yeah, it would be fascinating. It sounds kind of weird that I'd be sitting listening to them having a chat, though. Um, maybe I should change that to someone else. But anyway, no um, man, maybe, look, yeah, that, that
0: let that stand. I think that would be definitely fascinating. You know, the most common is like Napoleon and someone else, or Jesus and someone else. Um, you know, it's because. Yeah, I mean, because theoretically, that's within your uh, possibility, right? If you wanted to play the game. Um, finally, what can we look forward to with Moran Media, which is your um, video production company? Um, what are you making now? We're talking about climate change uh, stories, climate crisis storytelling. You know, what, what do we have to look forward to?
1: Um, we've got a couple of projects in development. Um, we're going to be doing a project on missions. Um which is uh, a kind of an, an expanded version of our, the film we made open water but it's looking globally at, at people living in, uh, in the oceans um and uh and then you know f- further down the line uh I, I another I can't even talk about it, a climate related film that we're gonna be making as well um that I can't even talk about but okay um, no
0: worries yeah, well
1: so I mean busy time I mean the key the key for everyone right is is to get. Um, to get on the road and to start filming and that's the that 's the biggest challenge at the moment mm-hmm. is to to try and you know um the the last serious shoot we did was in among we went to mongolia Vanuatu uh to uh, isbekistan um nepal um and uh korea i think that was the last shoot that we did and and obviously I was recently in senegal but it's it's hard to get out there and film it more sure. because of the the, the restrictions mm. you know. but hopefully Hopefully we're going to
0: turn the corner soon. Sure, absolutely. Um, Look, you've been so generous with your time, Dan, and um, fascinating as well. So, yeah, I I couldn't thank you enough. Thank you so much for giving me the time. Okay, mate. Pleasure to you. Cheers, mate.